Mark 6, 45 through 56, that's page 791 if you've got one of the little black Bibles that are uh, scattered across the seats. It says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethesda. While he dismissed the crowd and after he had taken leave for them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for all they saw, for all, they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and began about the whole and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, and countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You guys can go ahead and sit down if you'd like. So it is an absolute pleasure uh, to be preaching with you here this morning. It's a pleasure to be worshiping with you this morning. One of the beautiful things about being a family of churches is really we are going through this text together. So while you guys have been going through this text in Fernley, uh, we've been going through this text in Sparks. And so this is really a family journey that I just get to continue with uh, on this Sunday. Uh, we get to have this shared experience, which is just amazing. And the reality is, as we look back through church history, this isn't just a shared experience of Livingstone's church. This is a shared experience of all Christians across all time spans and into the future. So we are really gathering together, not only as a body, a small body, but across the larger body and the larger historical body of Christ, which is just amazing how God does that. When Pastor Tim originally asked me if I wanted to preach, I said, sure, I'd, I'd love to come and, and preach. And uh, I, I looked into the time slots before I looked into what the text was. And so I chose the July 11th date because it seemed to be uh, the easiest for me to work around and then found out that I was preaching on Jesus crossing the sea. The last time that I preached uh, was on Jesus calming the storm. So this year I am taking all of the sea related passages uh, but that makes sense, though, because most of Jesus' ministry has been on or around the sea. Even when he preaches, often he goes into a boat on the sea to project, to, to talk to the crowds, which also makes sense because most, uh, well, sorry, one-third of his disciples were sailors or fishermen. So they spent a lot of time on the sea. And there are actually a lot of similarities between this particular passage of, of Jesus about to walk on water and the passage that was covered previously in chapter 4 about Jesus calming the storm. You have skilled fishermen getting into a boat sent by Christ across the ocean only to find havoc and, and tumultuous storms uh, are threatening them or they're struggling with that. To have Jesus be there while the storm calms and then for that to end with Jesus healing people on the other side of the shore. But we should note something. Mark is intentional. Mark is intentional. 
Um, if you haven't noticed from Mark's gospel so far, he's very cut and dry. He wants you to know the details. He wants you to, or sorry, he wants you to know the events, but not necessarily all of the details. Uh, as all of the gospel writers have written, uh, there is an attention, a, a purpose in each of their directions on what they want to do. Uh, John had his audience, Mark has his audience, Luke has his audience, Matthew has his audience. And so what Mark includes and doesn't include is incredibly important. This isn't for redundancy. This, this isn't just another sea story. And so I hope that as we look at this text this morning that we will see exactly why Mark included this. Paul gives us this robust and systematic understanding of the gospel and biblical theology. But Mark has been explaining the attributes and purpose of Christ through this narrative. And he gives a very specific and practical theology. If you're new to church or have never heard the term theology before, theology just means the study of the nature of God. That's it. It's nothing too complicated. It just means, hey, what do we think about God? What do we know about God? And, and then diving in and trying to understand more. That is theology. So what Mark lays out in these quick kind of cut scenes, these cut scenes that he gives us of, of the life and ministry of Christ, we are getting this practical and simple theology of Christ. And here's what we have so far. In Mark 121, we find out that Jesus has authority over demonic forces. In Mark 127, we find out that Jesus has authority over teaching. In Mark 1.31, we find out that Jesus has authority over disease. In Mark 2.5, we find out that Jesus has authority over forgiveness. Mark 2.11, he has authority over physical disabilities. Mark 2.13, he has authority over the Sabbath. Mark 3.1, he even has authority over the law. Mark 4.39, Jesus has authority over nature itself. Mark 5.41, Jesus has authority over life and death. In Mark 6.7, he has authority over his disciples. And here in Mark 6.42, we're going to find out that Jesus has authority over our faithful, faithlessness. It is a beautiful theology that Mark has laid out here. So as we examine the text this, this morning, the intent is not to reiterate the same things we discussed and talked about when Jesus calmed the storm. I believe that there is a deep theological implication for why this story is in here. And so as we dive into the text, Mark, Mark 6.45, as Mark often does, he dives directly in with this word immediately. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethesda, while he dismissed the crowd. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people with a few loves, loaves of bread and a couple fish. Uh, the crowd is excited, and as we've seen before, the power of Christ and the visible power that he has over life, uh, it leads the crowd to want to make Jesus their king. Uh, it leads the crowd to want to wanna exalt him. But here's the deal. Jesus has a perfect plan, and he is going to be king on his own terms. He is not going to allow mankind to make him king. He is already king, and he's going to reveal that eventually. And so Jesus sends his disciples across the sea to the other side while he deals with dismissing the crowd. And we have to wonder exactly what the disciples were thinking. Were they nervous from their previous experience? The last time they were out on the sea, they nearly drowned. And uh, this time, they're getting sent without Jesus. Jesus is not in the boat, not even sleeping. He's staying ashore. Also, were they wondering how Jesus was going to get to the other side? Here they are taking a boat, and Jesus is like, I'll catch up with you. Like, and they're like, Jesus, you don't know anything about sailing, so, and you don't have a boat. We don't know, though, and the text doesn't tell us. There could be a thousand thoughts and feelings 
feelings of nervousness, maybe overconfidence, or maybe they thought nothing of it at all. We don't know. Mark doesn't tell us, but here's what we do know. Four of them were experienced sailors. Sailing on the Galilee was not an extraordinary event. It was perfectly normal, perfectly ordinary, perfectly common for them. They were men who were just sent out by Jesus to proclaim that people should repent. They cast out demons. They healed people. And now Jesus is like, hey, do that thing that you guys always do. The the normal, ordinary thing. And so now they're back in the boat. And Jesus, uh, sent by Jesus across the sea on this incredibly ordinary journey. And in verse 46, it says this, And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. Jesus sends the apostles across the sea, and he goes off to pray. There are only a handful of times in the Gospel of Mark that we see Jesus going off to pray. Now, we shouldn't confuse this and misinterpret this to mean that Jesus didn't often pray. But like everything, Mark includes this for a particular purpose. Um, this, Jesus obviously was a man of prayer because he, was, he is one person in the Trinity, in communion with God at all times. But Mark chooses in this moment to, to mark that Jesus went up to the mountain to pray. In this case, after being surrounded by an excited crowd, Jesus retreats to the mountains to spend time in communion with his Father. And he continued in prayer until it was dark. Mark is quick to point out that after praying, Jesus finds himself alone on the land. And as we find Jesus alone, we see an amazing contrast. Here we find Jesus alone on the land, but soon he would be alone on a cross. Here the crowd that would have made him king was dismissed by Christ. Soon that same crowd that cries Hosanna would abandon him. Here the disciples are sent out by Christ, but soon the disciples would desert Christ and even deny him. Soon Jesus will labor in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane in full foresight of the cup of wrath that will be poured out on him. But for now, he stands on a shore alone. And this beautiful foreshadow is set in such an ordinary setting. There's something about our human condition that makes us want to dismiss or even dislike the ordinary. But we find here everything is incredibly ordinary, almost dull. We find ourselves in the midst of this transition. Jesus is winding down a crowd after a big service of of feeding 5,000 supernaturally with fish and with loaves. And he's going off to pray this whole scene is, is, is much more reminiscent of, of, of winding down a community group or a small Bible study than it is uh, the Lord of the universe doing something really impactful. This, this desire uh, for the extraordinary often leads us to dismiss the value and the beauty that we find in the common. But there is so much grace to be found in common things, in the ordinary things of our life. A couple years ago, as a church family, we went through the book of Ecclesiastes. And I was struck by this repeated phrase that we find out, eat, drink, and enjoy your toil. But the author of Ecclesiastes adds something in chapter 3, verse 13, that he doesn't necessarily add to all the phrases. He says, everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. The author proclaims 
that even in your labor of what would otherwise be weary work, you can find joy in God. And the labor itself is a gift from God. The normal, everyday moments, uh, whatever they are, whatever normal, whatever everyday meticulous action, there is absolute joy to be found because it is a gift from God. And if you are in Christ, then he is with you in those moments. The disciples are sent by Christ on an ordinary mission and Christ has sent us as well. The Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, we know historically was fulfilled through God's providential moving. We had Christians getting saved in a central location who were then, through persecution, spread out across the world. They, they preached the gospel to unknown nations and unknown people groups because that's where they went. That's where they were pushed to. The gospel was naturally preached to these un, unknown and unreached people groups because God literally moved Christians by the power of his hand through their circumstances. So some of you are in Fernley this morning because God has already moved you here. Now you might say, John, I'm actually here because homes in Reno cost $1.4 million. And this seems a little bit more reasonable. But I would have to disagree with you and I would say, no, you are here by the providential moving of Christ. There is joy and beauty to be found in the common. Understanding this should honestly make us smirk just doing most things. I often joke that I think tacos are an ordinary means of grace. And I don't, I don't mean Taco Bell. Um, I mean two corn tortillas, like lengua or carne asada, um, chorizo with a little bit of cilantro, some onion, a squirt of lime, you know, that, that kind of taco. And it's so funny because I, I do, I smirk. I get so excited. I'm like, God, thank you for tacos. This is so great. Like, like who am I to deserve this? This is amazing. But what if we looked at ordinary moments and ordinary events in our life like that? How much more joy-filled would we be if we looked at, say, washing the dishes as an opportunity to be thankful that we had something to eat that day, to recognize we're undeserving and yet God cares for us? What if we took the opportunity of being stuck in traffic, you know, and honking and, and, and the construction to take an opportunity to thank God that, that he has found a way for us to provide for our families? What if we took the opportunity to, uh, instead of complaining about our children, to thank God that this is the opportunity we have to raise the next generation? Christians should be the most optimistic people in the world because the gospel tells us there is nothing that we've done that is good. It is impossible to earn God's favor. Our best efforts towards God are as good as filthy rags. We are entitled to nothing from God. But the Apostle Paul writes this in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace, he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known the mystery of his will, 
according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, and as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In the common, we have already received everything in Christ. There is always room for praise and gratitude towards God for who he is. Mark continues in this thought, and he saw in verse 48, and he saw that they were making headway painfully. For the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For, all they, for they all saw him and were terrified. Jesus, in his very real human body, with his very real human eyes, sees that the boat is still struggling. I point this out because even in the New Testament in the first century church, there were people who argued that, well, Jesus is just a spirit. And so when he walked on water, it's just a spirit walking on water. And we believe wholeheartedly that Mark is saying here, no, this is Jesus with his human eyes seeing a boat. And when he walks on the water, they think he's a spirit, but he is not. He is Jesus, fully human truly human, truly God. And the Sea of Galilee, so is roughly about two-thirds the size of Lake Tahoe. And so for those of you who have lived in Nevada for any means of time where you understand Lake Tahoe, um, it's about the same, roughly the same size, same similar uh, weather patterns. Uh, the Sea of Galilee sits in a basin and would often, like, like Tahoe, be subject to these winds that would whip across the hills and just blow hard across the, the lake, causing huge waves to come up, which is what we know happened in, uh, when Jesus calms the storm in chapter 4. And so this boat has been struggling now for hours. It says that this was a, about the fourth watch, which is just before daybreak. So sun is just about to break out, you know, but they've been struggling all night. They've, they've ditched the sails by now, who knows how long ago, and they're just rowing as hard as they can against the wind. It says this though, but Jesus saw them and he came to them walking on the sea. Not just a calm sea, but this sea is in turmoil. The wind is gathering and, and waves are, are crashing. At this point, the text says he meant to pass by them. And Mark includes this. He intentionally put this in there by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And whenever we approach a text, uh, one of the most important things we want to understand is what did the original author intend to convey when he wrote this? And the reality is, is there is only ever one correct interpretation of the text. Um, there sometimes can be multiple applications that we can draw, but the author only intended one thing. Uh, many times we discover this through context, right? If I say, I love bats, you're like, oh, cool. But my previous statement was, I love everything about baseball, especially bats. You would understand that I was talking about baseball bats, but on the context of I love bats alone, I might be talking about furry flying mammals. Within this, we want to understand the context, but even with the context, this is a slightly difficult phrase to understand. So as we arrive at the phrase, he meant to pass by them, we struggle a little. It's not just me. Countless commentators are slightly, um, have slightly different takes on what this means. I'm going to give you a couple. Uh, one would be, from the disciples' perspective, the ghost looked as if it was intending to pass by them. As William Lane puts it, written in the first person, this would read, 
He was meaning to pass by us, but when we saw him walking on the sea, we thought it was a ghost and cried out. Uh, the second interpretation of this could be that it was Jesus' Jesus's intention to pass by their way, as, as you might go to somebody's house and say, hey, we were passing by your way. Like, we were intending to see you, but like just the phraseology, right? The third possible interpretation is that this is a reference to the Old Testament in which the glory of God passes by Moses. That would be taken from Exodus 33, 22. The point of this, point of this scripture and the point of me saying anything isn't that scripture can't be understood or that we've lost anything. I can assure you that any misunderstandings we have about Scripture are entirely on us. Scripture is perfect. But here's the thing. God has called us not only to put our affections on Christ, but he's also called us to engage our minds on Christ. And this is one of those times where we really have to engage our minds. Romans 1.20 calls us to this through this verse. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And this is beautiful because it is not just about having our affections on Christ, but it is about engaging our minds on scripture and the things of Christ. So we get to, in our, in our Christianity, engage mentally with the things that Christ is telling us. We get to wrestle with these things, and we should we should wrestle with scripture to know what the true meaning is, to understand it, to find that true interpretation of what the scripture means. It says, but when they saw him, they cried out, the disciples that have been struggling for hours, making no headway, no doubt exhausted, beginning to fall into despair, they see a ghost coming from across the stormy waters. For sure this is a bad omen, right? Um, if you see a ghost coming your way and you're already struggling, like bad things are about to happen. Looking back to God, uh, so sorry, and so their cry of, of helplessness seems so justifiable, right? Like, like we look back at Israel and when Jesus takes Israel out of Egyptian captivity and into the wilderness, what do they say to God? They say, is it because there are no graves in Israel that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. These, this is the normal human reaction towards God. We, we often take something good that God is doing, we find struggle in it, and then we blame God for what is happening. But Jesus knows what their reaction is going to be before they even cry out. He has foreseen it. He knows what their thoughts are going to be before they even have them. And before we get too far out in condemning the disciples and their fear— Let's note this. They never turned back. Jesus told them to go to the other side. And they kept pushing. And I know that I can look at times in my own Christian walk, as a Christian, as a, a born-again believer, where I know what the right thing to do was, and I was struggling in it, and I gave up. I turned back. How many times in our Christian life, when we are struggling with obedience— Against the winds of the world, do we cave to the temptations to let the winds just carry, that, carry us where they were? How many times in our struggle against sin do we drop the oars and just dive right in? Do we think that Jesus has not seen our struggle? We often live our lives as if we feel like Jesus is far off on the mountain. 
alone in praying. I think this contributes to our lack of desire for the ordinary. And even though we might have a theology in which we believe that God is all-knowing and omnipresent, but maybe we live practically day-to-day as if we don't really believe that. We often confess that Christ is all-knowing, but doubt whether he is all-caring. We confess that God is omnipresent, but doubt that he's near. We will confess that Christ is all-powerful, but then doubt that he would exercise any authority in our lives. When Romans 12, 2 affirms that we should be transformed by the renewal of our mind, it's these things that it's talking about. Not just our confession, but what we actually believe in the way that we live our lives. Eating breakfast, grabbing a cup of coffee, washing dishes, driving to work, changing a diaper, correcting a child for the millionth time, deciding what to eat for dinner, hosting a community group, talking to a friend on a phone about heartbreak, laboring in prayer over difficult decisions, fighting to reconcile a relationship, struggling at times to make, t- struggling to make time to read the scriptures. Whatever it is, Christ knows your struggle. He's in control and he cares. Christian, even in your failures, even when you dive into sin, Christ cares for you. We can struggle in the ordinary because Christ has changed our perspective. Christ brings real purpose to our struggle. If we know that our struggle in the ordinary is a gift from God, then God is worthy of praise and he has joy for us. We can persist. If our struggle against sin is difficult and the winds feel as though they just we just want to give up and give in. We have reason to persist. Heads up, this is a bad dad joke, and not all of you will get it. <laughs> Jesus does not just leave us on scene and ghost us. And he doesn't do that to the disciples either. That was an iPhone joke. Maybe you guys are Android people. Um, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. As soon as the disciples cry out in fear, Jesus responds in love. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus hears the cries of his disciples, and he comforts them. It is very possible that the phrase, it is I, is a reference back to the statement God makes to Moses in Exodus 3.14 when Moses asks God, how he's going to convince the people of Israel that God really sent him, God responds, tell them, I am has sent you. Likewise, later in Romans, when the Roman soldier, sorry, likewise, later in Mark and Matthew and the other gospel accounts, when the Roman soldiers arrive to arrest Christ, asking if he is Jesus of Nazareth, he responds, I am he, in that particular account, says people fell back. Jesus comforts his disciples with himself. John Piper says it this way, to be supremely loving, God must give us what will be best for us and delight us most. He must give us himself. And in this moment, Christ has given his disciples the most comforting, the most caring thing he can do. He has brought himself into the boat. And this, and this great gift The disciples who are still incomplete in their knowledge of who Christ is, they still get this real peace. The wind ceased 
And rather than fighting against the storm, rather than rowing as hard as they can, they can spend time just being astounded. They were once again in the boat with the God of the universe, and they were not aware of it. Now here's the thing that the disciples had to wait for Christ to go from the shore to the boat to experience this real presence of Christ. But as Christians who have placed their faith in Christ, we are united in Christ and united to Christ. There is a real peace and there is a real presence. Uh, There's a real peace in the presence of Christ. And this understanding of that Christ is truly God we can have assurance that Christ is never far off. He is never far off on the mountaintop praying. He he is never far off where he does not see our struggle. The Christian experience at every moment experiences the full presence of Christ and his affection and his care. Christian, he is with you. He intercedes for you. His thoughts are for you. We have an advocate whose affections are put on us. We can glorify him in that freedom and live for him without worry or doubt. May it be the cry of our heart to match the Apostle Paul when he writes in Philippians 4.13, which is the most misquoted verse possibly in Scripture. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Out of context, this verse means just about nothing. It's something fun to throw up in your home gym. Um, Maybe put it on a, a, a team billboard or something. In context, though, In context, this has nothing to do with changing your circumstances. What the Apostle Paul says when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, we go back a couple verses, we find out the context is, I have learned to be content in every single situation. Whether God is prospering me in the moment or whether I'm brought low, I can find contentment and joy in Christ. So we can proclaim, I have a perfect advocate whose affections are set on me. So I can be content and find joy in the ordinary and in the struggles. In verse 53, and when they had crossed over, they came to land, they came to land at uh, Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region, beginning to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, city sides, or countrysides, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might even touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. When they finally arrived where Jesus intended them to go, as they stepped off the boat, instead of stepping into struggle, they're stepping off with Christ. And in that they experience, as they have experienced the great peace of Christ, they get to see that Christ is bringing great peace to others. They get to experience this great peace that Christ brings wherever he goes. The disciples that persisted in the ordinary crossing the sea experienced the extraordinary power of Christ. These disciples that experienced peace in a very real way now get to see that extraordinary peace brought to all those who are around them. Our calling is not to spin our wheels in the ordinary with the hope that someday we will see something extraordinary in Christ. Our calling is to be faithful in the ordinary as a steward of the common, making the most of it. If you have a career, praise God for the provision. Give him gratitude and let that be a point of praise and a means to glorify him. 
if you raise children at home, praise God for the blessing that he says children are. And if you are struggling to find that they are blessings, wrestle with the scriptures until you believe what the scriptures say about children and then cling to that and make that your heartfelt cry. Whether you are a student and an employee, a business owner, a homemaker, or retired, the daily things that you do are for something and someone. Let them be for Christ. As we find joy and contentment in the ordinary, we will see Jesus moving in extraordinary ways. We may never see miraculous healings, at least physical. We may never see the dead raised to life. But the one thing we are guaranteed is we will see Jesus redeeming sinners. Christ is clear when he says, I will build my church. Jesus is all about the business of redeeming sinners. Seeing sinners brought from life to death, that seems to be greater than even seeing the physically dead raised. Jesus saving sinners and building his church. This Jesus, who would care enough to come to his disciples, would eventually, would eventually bring our sins to the cross, giving us his righteousness, placing his affections on those who doubted, bringing peace to those who struggle. This God we can labor and toil for. This is a God who brings us peace in our struggles. Let's pray. God, you are so great. Lord, thank you that you have given us literally the best gift of all. Lord, you have, you have bestowed on us yourself. Forgive us, Lord, when we dismiss the, the common, when we dismiss the ordinary. God, when we don't believe what your word says about the toil, God, would we find joy in it? Lord, would we find excitement in the ordinary things? Would we be able to look at things like washing the dishes and, and start to smirk because we know we have a good God and we are undeserving? Father, you are so good. Lord, as we enter into this time of communion, Lord, would we be able to experience your real presence as those who are united with you? I pray this in your name. Amen.